Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Believe it or not, there is such a thing as an architectural comic book. And I don't mean dentist office comics where a cartoon Vitruvius leads the reader through a cheesy time tunnel museum. No, these were real comic books, graphic novels on architecture by young designers whose imaginations outpaced their commissions. Archigram, coming out of London in the early 60s, imagined a near future of so-called living cities with portable, modular capsule homes and soft bubble walls of womb-like cushicles. Urban fabric interfaced with highly personalized dwelling systems, supported by a corded plug-in infrastructure that might have felt at home in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. By 1974, the group had made a film called Warren, I Remember Architecture 2. Pervading all this work was, firstly, a desire to break away from what had become the strictures of modernism, and secondly, an inescapable conviction that the idea of what architecture is had fundamentally, irrevocably changed. It is ironic, though, that these ideas that appeared so earnestly contra-modernist, or at least supra-modernist, had, decades earlier, been explored within the very institution that later generations loved to blame for the sterility of the international style. It is within a densely packed Gnomic essay by Bauhaus master Paul Clay that we find a gorgeous explication of the worldview behind that shift in the definition of architecture. The new description is grounded in a reformulation of how the very existence of a subject implies a co-determinative dialogue with the surrounding sensory environment. We saw in our discussions of suprematism how Malevich had been developing and testing a theory of sensory exchange with the environment via additional elements. Kandinsky's metaphor of the piano made this type of system beautifully vivid. Our next several episodes will now examine Paul Clay's careful articulation of the dynamics of this dialogue, a metaphysics with an emphasis on physics and the ultimately material outcomes of architecture that feed back into our lives, looping into our ideas of what we create next. Clay's essay is titled Wege des Naturstudiums, literally meaning the way or 
path of nature studies. But Naturstudiums also references still life or portraiture, the mode of art production orthogonal to Malevich's discipline of non-objective forms. Vega des Naturstudiums was published in the 1923 companion book to the 1922 Bauhaus exhibition that included the famous House am Horn. It is not Clay's best-known theoretical work. That honor goes, regrettably, to his pedagogical sketchbook, a summation of sorts for the art school's introductory studies. Whatever opinion one has of that volume, it must be considered that it was the work of a painter describing his own interpretation of an absent professor's curriculum. It was published in 1925, the year the school moved to Dessau, and two years after Johannes Itten had been dismissed to be replaced by Laszlo Moholy-Nagy. Collected from notes and drawings, the pedagogical sketchbook reveals more about how Clay reworked Itten's ideas than about ideas Clay himself had. The common ground between them was, of course, that both men were expressionists, and both of them Swiss nationals. Clay was nine years older than Itten, born in 1879, and just like Kandinsky was somewhat too old for the 1890s bohemian counterculture, Clay was slightly too young for it. Despite the age gap, Clay and Kandinsky became fast friends in Munich during the peak years of the Blauereiter, remaining close throughout their lives. Clay was a lifelong amateur musician whose parents had wanted him to play the violin professionally, but he felt the vitality of European music had peaked with the 18th century, stating, I didn't find the idea of going in for music creatively particularly attractive in view of the decline in the history of musical development. He was clearly very conscious of broad cultural trends in art. Any meaningful new ground to be broken lay in the future of the visual arts. Clay came to the Bauhaus in 1921. He would remain with the school until the very late days of 1931. He was initially assigned two studios and took care of instruction in bookbinding, stained glass, and mural painting workshops. Amongst the considerable ideological acrimony that had built up within the institution as several men and some women, all with strongly held convictions, vied for what would define the Bauhaus. Clay strained to be a voice for, if not the moderation, then the synthesis of competing ideas. Of these conflicts, he wrote that he approved of these forces 
competing with one another if the result is achievement. And it is precisely this achievement-directed focus that is brought out in the piece we will examine here. Clay's essay comes third in the publication after Grotheus's lengthy introduction and an entry by Gertrude Grunov on the interrelation of form, color, and sound. While the Bauhaus Manifesto had been full of ambitious abstractions, Grotheus must have been well aware that a school of art and architecture cannot live by words alone. Part of the whole point in combining the fine and applied arts schools was a kind of constructively infinite mirroring. Ideas would inform practice, while practice would reflect back upon new and transformed ideas. The book portrayed statements in physical objects as well as ideas in text. It is a tome as diverse as the school was, but if there was any attempt at a unified theme, it was Grotheus's opening words. The idea of the contemporary world is already recognizable, but its form, literally gestalt, is still unclear and confused. The old dualistic worldview, the I in opposition to the all, is in decline. By 1923, it had been clear to many for decades that the forms of Western architecture had become inadequate to circumstances. But implicit within Grotheus's statement was the crucial idea that it is useless to tinker with broken forms unless you're also mending broken ideas. And it was Clay, the diplomat among the warring professors, who picked up this gauntlet with a mere two pages of text and one supremely influential chart. If you will indulge us, what follows now and in the next episodes will, to borrow Clay's words, come schrittweise so zum Ausdruck, stepwise, thus, to expression. While Grotheus set up the challenge of breaking through the fracturing model of Western dualism, Clay began his essay by asserting the inevitable circumstance of duality. The dialogue with nature remains for the artist the essential condition. The artist is human, himself nature, and a piece of nature within the realm of nature. He has typeset these words off from the rest as an introduction.
almost as if he is stating his givens within a scientific argument. The view expressed here is that the artist, or indeed any subject, is inseparable from his environment because the artist is a part of the environment. It could be argued from this position that all art, whether abstract or figurative, comes from nature in a way because everything, the conscious mind included, does. When Malevich writes of his non-objective paintings liberating artists to reconnect with and re-examine nature, this non-dualistic duality is implicit in his reasoning. Part of what makes the topic notoriously difficult to talk about, however, is the effect of reflexivity or looping between mind and world. It can seem like trying to understand the images that come up when two mirrors point at each other. Painting with words, what Douglas Hofstadter would later call a strange loop in Gödel Escher Bach, Clay emphasizes that the human itself is nature, and a part of nature within a wider sphere of nature. The older, dualistic idea that Grotius had been framing as obsolete would present the thinking individual in opposition to nature, affected by it, but not part of it. This thinking remains with us in many ways today, not in the least, by how we persist in drawing a stark distinction between natural and synthetic. But what we're prone to frame with a convenient binary split is more properly a matter of degree. Is asphalt synthetic while cheese is natural? Most people would instinctively say yes. However, both are solids made from liquids found in nature and made so by human intervention. If anything, bitumen is more natural, starting off in the ground instead of inside a domesticated cow. The ancient civilizations who used both milk and bitumen would have found it took less steps and a less complicated civilization to make the asphalt. Revealing the dualistic artificiality in this all-too-common cutoff line between synthetic and natural demonstrates how Clay's contrasting model of interactive duality can change how we understand systems of production, the world itself, and our place in it. Clay was not, of course, inventing this system from whole cloth, but he was packing it into a very richly woven piece. Preceding him was a trajectory in where physics 
and metaphysics drifted toward each other. In mathematics, matrix algebra, a branch of linear algebra, was developed in the mid-1800s. And please, set aside all thoughts of green text cascading down a black screen. Anyone who has used a spreadsheet application is familiar with a matrix. In the context of a spreadsheet, a matrix is a table of numbers with defined relations between them, with addition and subtraction being most common among them. Due to these defined relations, when you edit one number, the whole table changes. A change elsewhere in the table will then also reflect back as a change in that first number. The larger frame is thus seeded with the numerical values that kick about when changes are made. It was in 1848 when James Joseph Sylvester applied the term matrix, which is Latin for womb, to mathematics. What Clay describes, the human, as a part of nature within nature's greater realm, is likewise analogous to a child within the mother. Important for our purposes here, all three circumstances share a significant common property. The child within the mother, the individual within nature, and a digit within a matrix are all distinct entities with co-determinant identities. A change in the context creates a change in the thing, and vice versa. This mirroring, or strange loop, sense of identity, stated so curtly in his second sentence, is one fundamental assumption of his essay. The artist is human, himself, nature, and a piece of nature within the realm of nature. But what does this at all have to do with art and architecture? That he addresses in his first sentence which foregrounds the phenomenological discussion that informs the rest of the essay. Why would it be that the Zweisprache, that is, literally, the two-speaking between the human and nature, be the artist's essential condition? It helps to recap that Expressionism had, by this point, become a faded movement. But from his daunting perch in 1923, Clay was critically looking back at where it had brought art. 
it had begun. Like Dada, as a cry of vital protest against withering civilization, but as we remarked in earlier episodes, the expressionist impulse in Kandinsky notably, but even in Malevich, went first inward towards feeling, reason, shape, and color. And so it grew increasingly wrapped up and less connected to the surrounding nature. Malevich had only begun to reconnect to the physical with his architectons by 1923. Kandinsky, on the other hand, was circulating handbill surveys to Bauhaus students in a stubborn attempt to prove to the other faculty that triangles were always yellow. Remember how Clay emphasized that he would approve of argument as long as the results translated into achievement. His first given statement, emphasizing dialogue with nature, brings that to the fore, alongside the mathematical tradition that serves to describe the recursive matrix of mankind within the realm of nature, a philosophical tradition of phenomenology was already exploring how the conversation of the senses interplayed with the wider world. Later on in the essay, Clay calls the contemporary artist more than a refined camera. He is more complicated, richer, and roomier. If one would wish to avoid being like a camera, how much worse would it be to become a camera pointed at itself? That, in part, is the trap Clay wished to spring. Join us as we follow Clay in hopes of seeing the definition of self architecture, and quite concretely, the world transform. Next time on Lapsus Lima.